0: Harpo the Healer. Welcome to Harping with Harpo podcast. This is the 22nd podcast and is a supplement to Harpo the Healer on YouTube. This is the start of series four with a slight difference. I'll be taking the opportunity to air some solo podcasts and in this episode I'm going to start with a humorous look at the mailbag. First category, I start talking about the need to specialize or not to specialize in music, not just the harmonica, all instruments or all musicianship. Probably can apply to anything, advantages and disadvantages, of course. And uh, looking at genres, the session player over the commercial player. Then I move on to talking about knowing yourself, which is crucial. It's kind of linked into the last uh, topic on genres and session playing. I'll mention a movie called Whiplash from 2014, and I'll talk briefly about that. Next, a science topic. Um, in the science topic, I'm going to explore the idea of multiverses, parallel universes. The idea that it's possible to, or is it or is it not possible that we've got these parallel universes sitting alongside us? Could it be possible one day, perhaps, to move from one universe to another? The podcasts are free, and if you feel that it was anyway beneficial, Harper the Healer YouTube has got a link on there for you to help support the channel and help drive us forward. This podcast was made on the 16th of February, 2022. Right, we'll start with a couple of letters to the editor. Here's the first one from a guy called Edwin Godtrott. Dear Harpo, bought a blues harp recently. Now, here's the thing. They always say start at the bottom if you want to learn something. Would you agree? Well, yes, Edwin, I would uh, most of the time. But as in this case, what happens, for example, if you're learning to swim? So with that in mind, um, there are always exceptions to rules, whether it's musicianship or whether it's anything. But um, I'll uh, revise and reflect on that anyway, Edwin, and I'll make sure that I uh, put it in the um, Harpo the Healers Workshop manual amendments. Second letter for today, the lucky winner. Dear Harpo, this is oh this is from somebody called Winifred Shortfield. Dear Harpo. My husband was a musician. He was a. Uh, also uh, was a fantastic conductor. He was so good um, that uh, last week he went off to work and got struck down by lightning and is dead. After the funeral, should I have him replaced or should I take up the uh, blues harmonica? Well, I mean, you could do both, really, couldn't you? You could have him replaced and you could take up the blues harmonica. But bear in mind, blues harmonica comes first. You know, don't worry about anybody getting in the way if. Uh, if the replacement's gonna get in the way, then uh, do without the replacement. Right, well, I'm gonna talk briefly on the uh, blues harmonica and music in general today, because I want to get on to let my thoughts wander onto multiverses and parallel universes, uh, which is a, a fascination, of course, and hopefully for the listener. But um, I'll just give you some uh, musical thoughts as well today, that might help a couple of people. I did a video recently on uh, diatonic harmonica when I was l- talking about regulating breathing. Uh, there might be one or two things on there that you might not have come across and for people starting out for example old or young uh, how beneficial the harmonic can be its health benefits in exercising diaphragm and lungs and so that's, uh, that's worth checking out now I've mentioned on other videos when I've done it with RJ that um, you, you know, it is important to or, or attempt to try and specialise as soon as possible you know, there's the old adage that we look at everything and, of course, open your mind up to absolutely everything. But the sooner you can get into that, uh, I call it, and some people might not do, that precocious way of getting into something and sticking with it uh, sooner rather than later, I think, is, uh, is, is just kind of the way to go to facilitate success. In, in playing the musical instrument, I think. I often find, as a uh, educator, uh, that when you, um, are, you've got students, they, uh, you know, I encourage them to go to the internet, of course, and to look at absolutely everything, and they start plucking things off trees. But sometimes it deviates from what I'm trying to ask them or suggest to them to do. And, and this can be a bit of a problem, it can be a bit of a hint and I use the analogy of if you went to a martial arts school for example, a judo club, a, um, a karate club or a, a kung fu club or whatever the sensible course of action if it was a pretty good school is you should stick with that school and develop from that sensei, the instructor, whoever, or whatever you call them and, uh, and and develop a style before you move on you have faith in the person that's, uh, that's showing you and have faith Faith in them get somebody who's pretty good and then um, and then follow it through first because sometimes well I it quite often that they you know people pluck things off trees and sometimes off the net they get some absolute gems of course by the same token sometimes they end up going down paths that really are sending them in the wrong direction or at the very least is going to add another 10 or 12 years on to their progress so I think that that's, uh, that's kind of uh, kind of important A lot of people might not know that um, there's a huge difference between a successful artist in a kind of in certain financial worlds, but in in terms of being famous or commercial or head of the field and the uh, the unsung hero of the session musician who uh, you know is absolutely brilliant at what they do they can play just about anything they can read anything they can improvise anything they're a good quality pro but these characters usually never get plucked from obscurity in their own right, very rarely hap- I think going back in commercial days you kind of got you know, like your Barry Manilow, he kind of came from that session world into that and there are a few others but in terms of um, you know you usually don't get it and a lot of it is basically down to personality. In the jazz world for example it's kind of nature of the beast really um, that why that um, they, they don't inflate their own characters in to get some sort of notoriety, so it kind of implodes on itself. Um, a lot of genres are similar. Blues can be a little bit like that, although I found over the years working predominantly with blues players uh, and also working with modern jazz players uh, that uh, they are a different animal uh, in terms of their outlook and the type of people that they are. It's really interesting. So you find that, you know, in order to have that eccentric personality, it's uh, sometimes conflicting with the guy who's had to really focus down into, um, into what they're actually doing. And that's something that um, will always be the case. Now, as we know, you know, music over the last 20 or 30 years has changed considerably. You know, and uh, it's not what it was uh, in terms of and how musicians used to make their living um, and in the old days of making an album and then touring it and all the rest of it, or vice versa. So uh, things have changed uh, considerably in the music world. Um, with social media now, people uh, often get plucked from obscurity by, uh, by being picked up on the internet. And so that's a, an, another way of looking at it. So I guess what I'm pointing out to the listener is that uh, eccentricity or um, uh, I don't know whether you're a gregarious character or whatever or you've got to do something different something different has to happen if you want to be plucked from obscurity in that way and of course uh, as I said on other videos that sometimes the very nature of climbing inside to a musical instrument or musical instruments sometimes is at odds with uh, with trying to be this other person and occasionally you can get both and get the talent in both directions You know, you think about sort of a a band like uh, a commercial pop band like the Beatles, for example, who if it hadn't been for Brian Epstein and to get them to change, uh, and they were reluctant to change how they dressed at one time, they were in the, the leather jackets and jeans. And he changed them, and uh, they they went that way eventually, but of course, even they, even at that stage, and then you've got the exceptions to the rule, like you David Bowis, who are fantastic artists who understood the commercial artists and understood the two. and of course, as an artist, as a, as a, as a pop artist, sometimes as a, a blues and a jazz guy, we kind of sometimes we used to sort of as a younger guy, you tend to sort of frown on this commercialism, but of course. You know, there's an awful lot of creativity within the commercial sector as well, and you uh, sometimes uh, people climb inside themselves and and, and don't sort of uh, see the wood for the trees. And there is an awful lot of creativity right at the forefront. So um, you know, as early as possible, as, as I use this term yet again, precocious, uh, knowing yourself. Um, obviously, when you're a younger guy or younger person, you're you're searching for an identity in. Um, You've also got to understand that people's identities can change, and that uh, even if you're not aware of it, uh, through the fullness of time and experience, your uh, your ideas and, and your persona will change, even if they're only small subtleties. So you know, taking up the blue harmonica at any time in your life uh, is, uh, w- is, is in my view a benefit. Certainly a health benefit, and obviously a cognitive process as well. If you come to somebody like myself, I've been a multi-instrumentalist. And after in my very early life, I was uh, in doing a very active and did a lot of uh, well dangerous things. But once that was that period of my life was over, I spent the majority as a jazz saxophonist. I'm a multi-instrumentalist. I've played at least probably play about 10-11 instruments but certainly six or seven of those I've played professionally. To I me mean, even though I talk about focus I love all sorts of music, predominantly uh, for many years listening to jazz and blues. I love Bach for example. Ah the man's a hypocrite I hear you say. Well no, uh, he's my favorite classical musician and to me I just hear jazz in it. So really it's about how you listen to things, isn't it? And you can be coached on that as well, or you're surrounding yourself with certain types of people. It was Henry Ford, the uh, industrialist, who said that thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason so few people engage in it. And I often wonder, you know, uh, listening to improvised music does require a little bit more perhaps than just vegetating but if, uh, if the general population were uh, turned on to it, even from the fact that, uh, you know, it is a form of cognitive process, even in that listening way if you're listening to improvised music, which could have a health benefit in staving off your Alzheimer's, staving off your dementia by exercising those certain areas of the brain. And perhaps if a lot of people understood that, perhaps um, more challenging music, uh, classical jazz, uh, good blues and flamenco and all these uh, great uh, musics would uh, would be more popular. Having said all that, the uh, wonderful thing about music is music has different functions. Um, you know you can have people listening to jazz for many many years on completely different levels. So it's, it's how you actually listen to it which has an overall bearing on how you develop now I'm going to turn my attention to a film called Whiplash, which was uh, released 2014, and it's it's a really it's a good film actually. There's some anomalies in it. I'll go through in a second. But um, Whiplash it's about the story of a, it's kind of a psychological thriller uh, about a, a, a young jazz drummer in college and trying to make this Schaefer band the best band and the sort of, uh, the kind of, the, the uh, aggressive drill sergeant, psychopathic uh, band leader uh, and what he demands from his students. And, uh, yeah, there's some elements of it. It certainly uh, is, uh, portrays the idea of, of how a musician has to focus. Uh, but there are some anomalies. I mean, if the way that he was dealing with his students um, there, if he was doing it in modern day life, Half his students would have probably walked out and uh, be taking up a uh, a media studies degree or something like that. It's um, kind of it's not really uh, it's very very old school and it's uh, it's not the the modern way of course. But there are there are good elements in it. They use uh, some colloquialisms which um, or attempt to use things that that aren't um, typical jazz phrasing. They say things like "off by heart" instead of. Have you logged it, or we use the word have you logged it or memorized it? Usually logged it in Britain, but you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, and sometimes when the band leader does a count off, I think the piece is uh, one of the pieces in 7 4, and I think he counts off a 2. And uh, the modern ways, usually, uh, certainly in a big band situation, maybe you would use a 4 count there, or certainly I would, Um, it's, it's so you don't create confusion. Doesn't matter where you're going from. I understand that they're doing it for the lay people. They're doing it for, for, for an overall um, cinema audience. So yeah, there are some sort of artistic license there, but uh, they're using good pro musicians on it. And I believe that the actor who played the lead part there was uh, was a drummer and uh, he to get his skills up better, he put in four or five hours a day for a few months for the performance. Good pro musicians on it and uh, the overall sounds very, very good. I guess like all these things you have to take some of those anomalies out and and, and see it for what it is as a as a Hollywood movie but it's uh, definitely worth checking out because obviously I've uh, using this topic on focusing and they they get it right to a point the thing they talk about is this guy is he's obsessed with the uh, in this case buddy rich the uh, the great jazz drama which is strange to me because um a jazz drummer that will probably be into uh, Max Roach, Elvin Jones, uh, Philly Joe Jones, Joe Jones, all these guys, uh, the small band drummers, um, would probably be Art Blakey and those characters maybe. They, I, I can understand why they've picked Buddy Rich because he was constantly with Big Band but also he was a household name at you know, uh, he's always been a household name on a lot of talk shows and pushed his uh, persona that way. Uh, a little bit uh, like uh, in the commercial sense, a little bit like I was talking about earlier, of how some people can do the two. Well, in fairness, Buddy did have a reputation for being a little bit of a disciplinarian with his band. Um, so so they've used that probably because the, the cinema audience might well have heard of, of, of Buddy Rich. But in reality, I would have thought probably some more modern drums, even Tony Williams, great drummer, or the, uh, young, drum, young uh, professionals today, that they will probably certainly be looking at alongside... Uh, in this case, Body Rich. But overall, um, yeah, it's a really good uh, movie. Apparently it was like a short film that a guy won an award for and then, he, and then he, was, he got the money together to, to make this. And uh, the guy actually played the, uh, the band leader. He, he got an Oscar, I believe, as supporting actor, which is quite something in this, this style of film. The young director who was in his 20s, who was uh, drawing on probably his high school days, I think. Quite amazing that he he, he did what he did, wrote and directed this thing. Uh, there's a few things. When the, uh, the band leader's playing in a, a small club, or uh, playing piano in a small club, when a guy goes down, that's a bit naff, a bit too uh, stereotypical, um, not really done well. Yeah, they br- they also bring up the uh, the Joe Jones cymbal throwing uh, to... A very young, fifteen-year-old Charlie Parker, which changed his life. Well, that story's inflated and it's been distorted a little bit from what actually took place and 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 what inspirations happened with him. But um, but um, that's okay. That's another little bit of Hollywood uh, license, isn't it? But apart from that, it is actually very good. Amazingly, I'd never uh, I'd never seen the film. I'd heard about it when it first came out, but never got a chance to see it until recently. It's on Amazon Prime, I think. So. If you can get that around the world, uh, I'd check it out. But uh, what got me to thinking about this particular film was, well, certainly universities in my country. They're self-regulated. And I never really thought about this too much until I, I was dealing with something recently. That, of course, you know, when people take a degree, it's the, it's the university that credit and award the degrees, the masters, the PhDs, and all the rest of it throughout the country. And, you know, to me, that, there's a conflict of interest there. And I always think, that perhaps, to drive standards up, that perhaps there should be external examiners the way that we have them in our normal uh, comprehensive schools. You know we have inspectors go in and and well obviously during Covid things have been different but of course they will go back uh, eventually to normality where they have external examiners and surely I would have thought, round the world, the most sensible thing to drive standards up is that you have ex—you have the uh, exams uh, farmed out to external examiners, or at least checks from uh, interwoven with other universities to to make these checks, rather than self-regulating. Because, as I said, that creates conflict of interest. Of course, they they want to retain their students, don't they? And it's important that if they don't get enough people through. Um, then uh, you know the, the university has a problem validating its existence and in some professions you know uh, if you're on a performance degree it, it's probably uh, unlikely that you can fabricate it but you know we do hear stories of people who've had degrees uh, done for them, uh, it has been known and of course through my, my lifetime as a, as a, a jazz man or of wrestler I've come across plenty of people with what I thought were reasonably good degrees, when I'm having a discussion with them about something, and it might not be music; it might be something else, that uh, that I happen to just happen to have read up on a period of history, say 1580s or something, I don't know. And the period of history in question would have been uh, the period of history that they had studied, and having a discussion, and realised that um, these people um, aren't quite on the mark, you know. Watching this film, I was just thinking because I have a lot of knowledge about in, in certain musicals, uh, certainly in, in in music anyway, that perhaps um, it would be an idea to have uh, uh, external examinations in in universities. As a layperson to science, my podcast, for example, simply uh, if I'm stating some facts and figures, is is the sensible course of action is to check them out with several other credible sources. You know. From the scientists, uh, there's plenty online, and, and, and find uh, a few of them that, that cooperate the same thing and people who are qualified to do so. So um, the idea is simply to open up debate and conversation and to get people to think and hopefully get, to get people to think outside the box. After all, let's take uh, music as an example. It would be uh, ludicrous to suggest that nobody could have an, any opinion on music if they were a layperson. Let's crack on. I'm sure lots of you have done it. If any of us could imagine that out there somewhere, there was an intelligent life form that perhaps had visited us, or perhaps they hadn't. There's an equal argument for both, really, isn't there? Because we probably wouldn't know about it if they were of a superior intelligence. They didn't want to get rid of us. They might be floating about all the time, for all we know. But uh, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on. But there's a constellation in the uh, Southern Hemisphere Reticula, it's called, if I've pronounced it correct, a uh, binary star, which I'll talk about a little later. And in this binary star, it's, it's assumed that there will be planets there. And that's certainly from a, 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 a position where we can actually look up. Uh, it's a, a very, a, a very uh, likely place from where we are um, to sustain a place where planets could be that could, uh, could sustain intelligent life. That's what absolutely fascinates us all, isn't it? The fact that we're looking for a a place where, um, you know, there's water and liquid water and and the sign of intelligent life. I'm sure everybody's thought about this as well is, if there is intelligent life out there, how on earth are they going to communicate with us? You know, they're not going to send us a, a jazz record, CD with someone like with Charlie Parker playing on it are they or um, you know some sort of Chuck Berry guitar riff or something like that are they or sort of you know we're not going to send the beetle well I think they have actually sent these things up haven't they with, the, with music on them like Paul McCartney's and, 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 and music like that but I mean it's mind blowing to think that they could understand any of that and so probably the most likely way is that if they could see something on a probe that we sent like hydrogen, if they knew that we use hydrogen they 're using hydrogen. you know the fact of um, uh, but the, probably the most likely way to communicate, I would have thought was like a, a radio wave, that sort of thing, you know, like in a wave form, and that 's probably something that we can recognize and probably work with, other than that it it drives you it would drive you mad, actually, trying to work out how on earth they would be able to communicate with us. Because even if um, they were on a planet that was very similar to ours, they would have evolved differently, for sure. Absolutely for sure, you know. Who knows, it could be a dinosaur that's uh, with a huge brain strutting around with their iPhones and uh, driving uh, uh, open-top monorail-mobiles and things of that nature. Who knows, I mean, the mind uh, can go just about anywhere it wants, I guess. Okay, so that's, uh, you know, but I'm going to talk about this reticuli in a little bit more detail in a second. Today's question is, are there such a thing as multiverses, multi-universes, parallel universes? I mean, the mind can go wild, can't it, with fantasy? Um, Could we have a a worlds that are exactly the same as us? Or why not? Well, that's the thing I think I'm going to explore today. And with that in mind, now this is an interesting thing I'm going to start with. Reticuli. It's a wide binary star. Okay, now a binary star is a system of two stars that are gravitationally bound to the the same orbit of one round the other, Uh, seen in the night sky as a single object to the naked eye, but uh, can be resolved with a telescope as separate stars. They're known as uh, usual binaries. Now a binary star system is, is in the southern constellation of Reticulum in the southern hemisphere. So you can't actually see this in the Northern Hemisphere. So you have to be in the Southern Hemisphere to see it. The reason I picked this out is because there's probably the only possibility from what we can see when we look up from our world, an area where there could be planets that are similar to ours. And that, that, that particular area, there could, could be one. Like we said on these other pods before when I've been talking with RJ, the thing is, it's about distance. Distances are so vast in, uh, in the cosmos, it's quite incredible. It's the uh, nearest star to Earth, uh, Zeta-Riculi, um, and also the nearest star to the Earth with an exoplanet, which is named, would you believe, HD 21693. They get really creative when they're uh, naming planets, of course. So, an exoplanet. Um, all the planets in our own solar system orbit around the Sun. But planets that orbit around other stars are called exoplanets. This uh, binary star system is approximately 39.3 light-years away. Or uh, they use another system called 12 parsecs. Well, a parsec is used to measure extremely lar- large distances uh, of uh, astronomical objects outside the solar system. And 3.26 light-years is equal to 206,000 astronomical units, or 30.9 trillion kilometers now let's kind of put this in perspective one light year is the distance light travels in one year so light is the fastest moving thing we know of at hundred and eighty six thousand miles per second or 300,000 kilometers a second so a light year is 5.88 trillion miles or 9.46 Trillion kilometres—it's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Those sort of um, those sort of figures. And uh, these—that particular binary star in that constellation of Reticula—is three thirty-nine 39.3 light years away from us. I mean, you know, for example, we could be up in the Reticuli there on a planet. Uh, let's say we're on the planet HD two one six nine three. It sounds better if you say like Hotel Delta two one six nine three. I think the uh, the ancient Greeks and all these guys had a far better way of, um, of naming things. Anyway, uh, Mr and Mrs Dinosaur sat in their open-top uh, monorail system with their iPhones on the way to seeing their home baseball team, an international, the uh, Argonaut Cardinals, who are taking on the Jupiter Europa All-Stars. So it's, it's kind of mind-blowing just to try and get those things in your head, isn't it? Whether it's the distances or my fantasy. You know, just going back to my concept of intelligent dinosaur, I mean when you come to think of it actually from our perspective unless the dinosaur's brain was very big it grew very big but even so because of the actual uh, physicality of the design of the dinosaur it would be it's hard to believe that they could possibly develop into an intelligent life form but then of course as they developed they would uh, adapt accordingly so we just simply wouldn't be able to comprehend what their world would be like on a sophisticated level so these are the crazy things but of course when you delve into other worlds they're just simply not going to be like ours you know obviously if we've got one g of gravity then uh, there's a possibility they may be like starfish like us with the two arms two legs and the head on top which seems to us the most likely option but if they're on a world where they've got a heavier gravity then you know bigger muscle or perhaps very little gravity then they're going to be floating around with no muscles and they're going to be very wispy and light indeed so you can see that um, these even fundamental things can be so so different well you know cosmologists and uh, all the uh, the physicists and all the astronomers everything the scientific community as a whole well think that the laws of physics as we experience them are set at the very earliest stages of the universe. And quantum fluctuations in everything would be responsible for another universe, and probably, most probably, they say, would be slightly different, the physics laws, than our own. Which is, again, kind of mind-blowing, but you could, you know, you could kind of understand that. This basically would simply keep going every universe that's born, even if it started more or less the same as time went on, it would just be slightly different to ours. So within that universe, you know, all the planets, the star systems, everything, similar to ours, but not the same. So the laws of physics, as we know them, perhaps would not apply in those universes. That's one of the um, the ideas that these guys, these uh, experts come up with. The concept of other worlds, however, is a very, very old idea. You know, philosophers, the ancient Greeks, and uh, they discussed this, and they, they kind of use this term Uh, atomism, saying that a a physical world is composed of fundamental individual components such as atoms and they thought that uh, parallel worlds emerged from collisions of all these atoms And we're talking about that's going back to about third century BC and a philosopher, uh, I can't pronounce this, it's C-H-Y is his first one Kaesipos of Sol, suggested that the worlds expire and then they regenerate, in other words you know uh, they have an existence of multiple universes across time however this kind of concept has only really been seriously studied by the uh, the boffins the uh, the great physics minds and and the uh, mathematicians starting in about the 1950s and now in the 1950s this is when uh, this character Erwin Schrodinger appears he's an Austrian Irish physicist and he's a kind of uh really noted as being the father of the the quantum mechanics really and his mathematics were telling him and he sort of did this uh, this lecture it was mind-blowing to this the people when he did this lecture mathematics was telling me it seemed to tell him that there are several different histories but they all happen at the same time not alternate but uh... simultaneously and this i believe i hope i don't get this wrong this is called superposition and it said that our brains are not suitably equipped to understand quantum mechanics uh well, well I guess in my case and uh and everybody's a layperson i God knows if this if this is the case with the physics guys and the astronomers and the mathematicians. God help the rest of us but um apparently this is what they say uh that we're we're just generally not equipped for it. well, I can understand that when you look at the world and you look up into the cosmos and the the idea to understand things is is this evolutionary process that we uh we found ourselves, uh, we discovered, you know, everything's sort of a very, very slow, gradual process, isn't it? And so I I can understand where that's coming from. And the large scale cosmic uh, phenomenon, phenomenon, (laughs) I can't say it, uh, multi-universes with the multiverse. And there may be pockets of the universe that are expanding without knowing in other pockets of the universe. In other words, independent universes from one another and they never meet. And an example, uh, sort of a ship sailing across the horizon, this is what one physicist was showing, and saying that um, uh, the ship sails over the horizon, one's coming the other way, uh, but they can't see each other. And they they can't, um, in order to do that, they'd have to overlap. And uh, the physicists are saying that uh, we don't know how to do that yet. Well, I guess, thank God we can't at the moment, um, but uh, that's how they describe it. If you could find a hole in a tunnel to sort of, go through from one place to another but of course if you're talking about physics and the fact that each universe m- may well be made up slightly different than our own and even if you were managed to do a quantum leap and they, they could crush you down and put you back together and somehow you could actually do it well when you got to the other end you'd be in a, a, a world that was um, the, thi- the whole physics was uh, designed differently from our own even just a little bit crazy just thinking about that so the uh, multiverse is a hypothetical group of multiple universes. Together they account for everything in existence, space and time, matter, energy, everything. The different universes within the multiverse called parallel universes, many different words for it, alternate, um, quantum uh, realities, alternate, um, all this sort of parallel dimensions, all sorts of stuff. Now this is fascinating that the uh, the uh, top scientists are divided on the subject whether, they, uh, whether these things exist or not and uh, some reject the theory completely and they don't see it as a serious subject uh, while others see it very much as a, a serious subject and it's very controversial and some argue if you don't look seriously at it um, you would probably damage physics as a whole and some thinks it's uh, simply an idea And so there's a huge controversy in this sort of thing. I watched one physicist who was actually lecturing, saying that um, all these universes could be so different. For example, it might um, only have stars in this universe and have no planets. Or there might be um, a universe that uh, can't make a heavy element, but there there are stars. Um, Another universe that could be uh, so different, um, lifeless. Uh, no stars at all there might be some form of planet there planet without any stars how on earth was the planet formed oh it might just be a nothing in the whole universe yeah the scientists they had this uh, wilkinson microwave anisotropy probe that they had the wilkinson microwave its uh, full name anisotropy probe uh, originally known as the uh, as that and uh, Explorer 80 was a NASA spacecraft operating from 2001 to 2010 which measured temperature differences across the sky in the cosmic microwave background uh, the radiant heat remaining from the Big Bang and this was interesting because originally they came up with the fact that um, they thought they'd got some data to suggest that uh, our universe had collided with others or collided with something else at, uh, at its conception or whatever uh, but then they later did a lot of data with the same probe and they couldn't find uh, any further f- findings. They, they did a more comprehensive search and it sort of kind of petered out. And so on, on previous podcasts we've uh, we've talked about the, the very large of Einstein's theories of relativity against the quantum, the very, very small. And RJ and I discussed that at quite a lot of length. Or, or we, at least we attempted to <laughs> in its very basics. But of course um, with this, this idea of uh, uh, they're looking at gravitational pull, really, from like if something's pulled like another universe has pulled something towards it or pulled it. And it's, it's, it's a gravitational pull that you're looking at all the time. And from that, uh, they're saying there's no evidence to suggest of this uh, gravitational pull. I guess I obviously don't really understand that to that level, but uh, they, let's put it this way, they can't find anything to see that uh, there's been an effect on us. And there's a gentleman called <clears throat> there's a gentleman called Max Tegmark who's a Swedish American physicist, cosmologist, a machine learning researcher. I think he's a professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology or something, or he was. I, I think so. And he's around uh, very much today. And he's got like four levels. He's come up with four levels of. Of uh, alternate or, or uh, parallel universe, in the fact of um, some remain constant, somewhere the physics are different, and the ultimate on level four where everything is in there, and you can't get a level five. Um, you'd have to go and read up on it. Obviously, I'm just uh, I'm just breezing over it here, but um, he he's kind of um, done the mathematical equations and done all the sort of stuff to sort of have a hypo- hypothesis. As, is, as they like to call it, um, on, on, these, uh, on these ideas. It's uh, bizarre, isn't it, that you've got um, these great physicists like this um, having uh, this kind of hypothesis and this kind of thinking and then other uh, guys of the same uh, quality dismissing it and saying that um, none of it is, uh, is correct. So um, it's crazy we've got these two uh, conflicting sides in, in science, which uh, I find fascinating. Okay, well, just kind of run with me here. It just seems to me, and um, this came up with uh, other pods talking with RJ, that um, it seems to me that uh, it's about speed here, that we, uh, we need to be able to go as mankind, we need to be able to go an awful lot faster to get from A to B, and that the speed of light, which is hugely, hugely fast, isn't fast enough and I think that we need to be going so fast that we can even uh, pass through objects that we wish to pass through without causing any damage either way just simply because we're going so fast I think that uh, that's kind of how I see it but of course you know we have to adapt if we're going that fast to get from A to B we have to be able to adapt to whatever we arrive at at the other end and I guess this is another topic of course but I guess that's where the thought experiment comes in and perhaps uh, transcendental meditation and, or you know that kind of thing comes in rather than as a physical being uh, as we know ourselves to be able to go from A to B. Because of course once you get to the other end, you've got to be able to survive when you get to the other end, haven't you? The conditions have to be right, which um, you know the, the oven's got to be set at exactly the right temperature um, and all the rest of it what 's interesting recently, as this pod goes out and this is this this information's only come out in this last few days, is that they've uh, the scientists at NASA are discovering uh, that moons uh, a lot of moons um, on s- s- surrounding uh, certain planets uh, are harboring water and I think they 've uh, recently s- seen this on a, a planet in uh, s- uh, orbiting Saturn, I believe I think it 's Saturn. One of those, and um, and of course they think there's water there, so there, you know that could that begs the question: could it sustain life? And if that's the case, then perhaps uh, a lot of moons. You know, there's an awful lot of moons surrounding Jupiter, isn't there? And a lot of these places could could they actually sustain life? Because it's now uh, coming to light that a lot of these moons um, have or are harbouring or have had liquid water. As a layperson. I find it easier to kind of uh, get my head around Einstein's thinking of the very large and the the quantum. I want to get into the quantum because I really like that uh, that idea. It really opens your mind up to absolutely anything, doesn't it, with quantum physics? Whereas, um... you know, with Einstein, basically, yeah, I get the general relativity thing uh, that gravity curves space and time. You know, this business of sort of like a, a tennis ball hitting the uh, hitting the trampoline and where it where there's a bulge that's what's creating that's what's creating the gravity i kind of get that and um, you know that famous uh, experiment where they put the clock on top of uh, they have two clocks one on the plane and fly it around the earth and of course um they find that the clock on the plane is uh, is slightly slower when they're they're both uh, obviously they're both uh, the same type of clock and everything specialist clock and uh, the, the, the one on the plane when it's finished is, is actually ticking slightly slower um, and that's a f- famous thing, a uh, famous uh, experiment but yeah I get the thing of Einstein, I can kind of loosely grasp that but uh, the quantum thing, well even the physics guys are fighting uh, how they, how it all works and of course the, the problem is with the quantum is that um, there's an, an element that's missing um, Now. Now, back in the day, I used to be uh, a war gamer, uh, what that is is uh, fighting battles on tabletops with thousands and thousands of small metal figures, um, thousands and thousands of them. Um, and I specialized in uh, the Napoleonic era, although I had an interest in history, and I've done ancient civil wars, all sorts of st- all periods of history. It's a, it used to be a fantastic way of getting people into um, learning about military history and history in general. But the reason I mention this is because, um, let's just take a Napoleonic game for example. You'd have thousands and thousands of figures and all these figures, the infantry, the artillery, the cavalry, all the figures, everything works on morale. Every time uh, something does something, a battalion say of 700 men moves, and say I'm moving a couple of divisions of uh, uh, 20, 30, 40 battalions, something like that. So they might be represented, 700 men might be represented by 36 to 46 figures on the table. So you might have 36 to 46 figures per battalion, uh, and you might have 10 battalions to, um, to a division perhaps, and you might have several divisions or brigades depending. The brigades are smaller than divisions. Um, you might have a lot more than that. And this is just the infantry, and this is just in one sector perhaps of the battlefield. So you can just uh, imagine the uh, the size of it. Might be playing on a 20-25 foot table or whatever. And uh, you can just imagine how, how the scale of it, but everything uh, is geared around probability. Like the quantum here. So that every time a battalion does something, it goes into attack or it, it tries to defend something, or whatever. Every move has to have a morale check and it's done with dice rolls. And it's checked for its attack, it's checked after it's been attacked, will it survive? And depending on the quality of the troops, depends on whether it survives or whether it runs away. Or whether, and whether it routes other battalions going back. And then they will have to check morale to see whether they survive uh, seeing what their colleagues are doing. And the whole game, the whole game is worked on morale. Now you can imagine, let's just take one battalion, just one battalion of say 700 men that uh, is down to sort of, and it's good quality troops, and uh, it's had a few morale checks but it's got up to sort of 50, 50% now and um, it doesn't make it on the dice roll and uh, say 70%, let's say 70% are uh, uh, routing, 30%, 30% are gone. They're either dead or wounded, but we know where they are and that 30% or 40% Some of them may well (coughs) be able to get back, others they won't. That'll be the end of it, okay? But there will be a (coughs) behaviour, excuse me, there will be a behaviour with that battalion, it will behave in a certain way. And we know what happens to the other part of the uh, uh, equation, so 70% and 30%, we know what happens to the 30% or what the behaviour of it. Where in quantum physics, there's an element that they just don't know where it is. You know, so you, they know what's happening say to the seventy percent, but they haven't a clue what's happening to the thirty percent. Well, the thirty percent will still have a behaviour, whatever it's doing. Something will be happening, and they don't know where on earth it is, and they can't predict. They can only sort of assume and think. They don't. There's not the prediction that they can in 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 um, in the general sort of the uh, ways that we do, and that's the that's the big thing, and that's one of the main reasons why they're so divided in uh, quantum mechanics. And I just look at the war game situation because in that that particular style of um, game everything is geared by morale and everything is geared by uh, probability. Just to explain that a little bit further for people who have done what I'm on about uh, just imagine that a cavalry is, is about to charge an infantry square an infantry square in Napoleonic times was a very strong, robust formation. And if they were in it, it would be very, hugely difficult for uh, cavalry to penetrate. Probably wouldn't be if it was being attacked by enemy artillery, it'd just get decimated if they didn't move. But the cavalry, so for example, if I had three dice, three uh, six sided dice, um, I might be sending in my French cuirassiers, which are heavy cavalry, into an infantry square. I might need something like seventeen or eighteen on the dice roll to even attempt to breach, as you can see everything is on probability. I always kind of got the uh, what they call determinism or super determinism that's uh, Einstein's theories of relativity and sort of you know and predicting something, looking in an area, seeing something land and make a measurement and I kind of get all that, but you see. Uh, with quantum mechanics. It's kind of different because it uh, only predicts the probabilities and so the outcomes are not determined. So quantum mechanics is known as indeterminist and super-determinism. The reason they can't be accurate with quantum because of the missing information that I've mentioned before. Remember, I use the analogy of wargaming. This missing information in quantum mechanics is known as the hidden variables. And basically that's the thing that divides them all in quantum is the fact that um, they simply can't, they can only predict in quantum mechanics, probabilities. So, summing up my thoughts today, looking at multi-universes, multi-parallel universes, according to the physicists or or what I've uh, been looking at, the scientists that uh, do extensive study in this kind of thing, it's very possible that the, uh, the physics or the general principles as we know them will be different um, in other universes. They might always not be the same. So that causes huge complex problems. Probably hard enough just trying to navigate our way around our own universe. I mean out there there's billions and billions of planets but of course somewhere along the line there will be one that uh, is in exactly the same conditions as ours. I just hope, as I've said in uh, previous pods, I just hope that we don't go gallivanting over to Mars and find that basically it's just a rust bucket and that, uh, you know, life uh, flourished there at one time and then it, uh, either something catastrophically happened and then um, it became a rust bucket and that was the end of that. I guess from uh, NASA's point of view, we need to know why the things happened on Mars the way that they did. Okay, well that's my thoughts for today on uh, multi-universes. It's quite an interesting thing. And eventually we can probably leave some of this main physics behind and let our minds wander into more fanciful things and uh, get into the real fictional worlds and then of course eventually science does actually catch up uh, which is uh, interesting. Um, Don't forget to check back on all the other pods and uh, and who knows, you know, one day we may well be finding a planet with uh, dinosaurs with iphones flying around on monorails who knows okay i'm at the end so uh, i'm about to blow out in the meantime if you want a cognitive experience and at the same time uh, physical health benefits why not take up the blues harp and check out harper the healer on youtube